Well, good evening and welcome back to our series of studies through the book of Esther. Tonight we will be um, concluding, actually, chapter 2. We'll be studying the, the final passage, that's verses 19 through 23. But before we get into that study, let's just do a brief review of what we studied last time. As Esther went through the final preparations to go into the king, we learned a little bit more about her, her nature and her character through what I believe to be strong faith and trust in the Lord. Esther shows obedience and submission to the authorities that God has placed in her life. And the result of the Lord's work in Esther's life, all the way up to her present circumstances and her submission to his authority, we saw that Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And then when, when she went into the king, when Esther went into the king, we saw the king respond to her very differently than he did to any of the other girls that he was with, the young women that he was with. We, we saw that the, the king loved her, he, that she won favor and grace in his sight. And this love and favor leads the king to select her as his new queen. And he personally sets the royal crown upon her head. And then finally, we saw the king exhibit what I would term as uncharacteristic love and kindness to his new queen and uncharacteristic generosity to his subjects throughout the entire empire. What did he do? Well, he hosted a feast. (laughs) That's what he does best, right? The king loved his parties. But Unlike his prior feasts, like the two that we studied in-depthly in chapter 1, unlike those where he was the focal point, in this feast, it's his queen who's the focal point. Remember back in in chapter 1, his queen at the time, Queen Vashti, she wasn't even allowed to attend the feast. But in this one... Esther's there, and and she's the focal point of the feast. In fact, the text records it as being named Esther's feast. And then the king extends the celebration of his new queen beyond the borders of his palace, where, where the feast is taking place. He extends it to all corners of his empire. He does so by granting a a remission of taxes and giving gifts with what is termed as royal generosity. All these things, very uncharacteristic of the king. Now, in tonight's study of verses 19 through 23, we will see Mordecai uncover a, a devious plot to kill, to assassinate the king. And he informs Queen Esther 
who in turn informs the king. And then the chapter ends with the king ultimately being saved from this assassination. So why don't we read the passage and then we'll get into our study tonight. It's Esther chapter 2, verses 19 through 23. It says, Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, And he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Amen. Okay, let's begin in verse 19. It says, now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. So this section of the story begins with this unexplained statement that the virgins were gathered together a second time. Now these are presumably the the same beautiful young virgins referenced back in verse 3, although some commentators have suggested that this was like a a second round of going out and gathering these young maidens to add to the king's harem. Either way, that's not explicitly stated, but either way, even though there's nothing else said about this event, It does, I think, it gives us another piece of the puzzle regarding the king's character. What I mean by that is, back in verses 17 and 18, we saw that the king loved Esther more than all of the other women and all of the other young virgins to whom he had access. Now, I do believe that the Lord was at work in influencing the king's heart and even his mind, directing him to his current affection towards or for Esther. And this is ultimately to serve his purpose, the Lord's purpose, in saving his people from annihilation. But we do need to keep in mind that That doesn't mean that the king was an entirely new man. He was not. He had not become a monogamist. He, you know, his plan was not to spend the rest of his life with Esther alone. In other words, he, he had not disbanded his harem. And I think that this little bit of information that we're given at this point in the this, in this story, I think that it confirms that. He has a new queen, 
and he loves her. But, you know, really nothing has really changed in regard to his, what I would term as a voracious appetite for a variety of beautiful women in his life. And then also this, this confirms the idea that it was God at work in Esther finding such favor with the king. This was not some type of a, of a natural change in the king's overall character. All right, now, now that brings us to the, to the subject of, the, of this verse, and that is Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Um, just a little bit of background. In the ancient Eastern world, the term, the king's gate, it, it referenced or it was used to describe the location where the legal trials and judiciary hearings were conducted and justice was dispensed. So the fact that Mordecai was sitting at the gate, this would indicate that he held some type of official position in the empire's uh, judicial system. In other words, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't just merely uh, loitering. He wasn't just hanging out. Uh, it, you know, this, this can easily invoke a, uh, you know, a, 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 a picture of somebody just kind of sitting there hanging out at, a, at an entrance. That, that wasn't the case here. It had to have been some type of an official position uh, that he held. We're not told what position, but it seems clear that he was there in some type of official capacity. Like I said, he wasn't just hanging around there loitering. Uh, and again, some, some uh, commentators have speculated that it might have been Esther who used her influence with the king to secure this position for Mordecai. Um, it's a possibility Certainly a possibility, but I think it's more likely that Mordecai held this position before Esther became queen. If you look back in verse 11, it indicates that Mordecai would daily walk in front of the court of the harem to inquire about Esther, to inquire how she was doing. And this was for the year prior to her becoming queen. I don't think that the general public was given that type of of access, uh, nor would he have been given these daily reports on one of the members of the king's harem if he didn't hold some type of official office. Okay? Okay. So that's verse 19. Uh, Verse 20 says, Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. Now this... This, uh, this verse is somewhat parenthetical to the main point or the main theme of this passage of verses 19 through 23, but it gives us a really important bit of information 
about Esther in relationship to the Lord's overall purpose in having her where he has her at this point, in having her as the queen. Uh, First, this verse reiterates what was communicated back in verse 10, reminding us that her Esther's nationality and her relationship to Mordecai, it's still hidden. It's still being kept secret. But in addition, we're told that even though she's now the queen, she is obeying Mordecai just as she did all the time that she was growing up. Hey, now, Esther grew up being an obedient daughter to Mordecai. But at this point in her life, the, the physical circumstances of her relationship with Mordecai, they've changed. She's now the queen of Persia. She no longer lives in Mordecai's household. See, once she married the king, Mordecai's actual authority over her as her father, adopted father, but he raised her as, her own, as his own daughter. So once she married the king, Mordecai's authority over her ended. His authority ended. She's now married, and she's under the direct authority of her husband, the king. But what we're seeing here is that Esther's respect for Mordecai, her trust in Mordecai, that hasn't changed. That didn't come to an end when she got married, when when his actual authority in her life ended. So where, where Esther had rightfully obeyed Mordecai's commands to her, as his daughter in his household before she was married. Now, as queen, as queen of the most powerful nation in the world at the time, she still values and she still follows his counsel and his advice. Not under his authority, but because she knows him. She loves him. She respects him and She trusts him. She recognizes and heeds his wisdom, even though she's no longer under his authority. This relationship, Mordecai and Esther at this point, it's a a wonderful example of a biblical pattern for fathers and daughters. You see, a, a father's role in his daughter's life, when she marries, must change. It must change from authority to counsel. Now, a good father, like Mordecai, is going to develop and earn his daughter's trust and respect throughout her life, growing up under his authority. And a wise daughter like Esther will continue to listen to her father's counsel and heed his wisdom, even when, she's mar- even when she marries and is no longer under his actual 
authority. Now, this, uh, this character trait of Esther, it's, it's an important element of the Lord working out his plan throughout this story. She is obedient and submissive to those whom the Lord has placed as agents of his authority in her life, as she has been throughout her life. She recognizes that their authority is actually the Lord's authority delegated to these individuals. And the result of this, as we were told in, back in verse 15, is that Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And I want to uh, 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 highlight two points. There, there are two points of practical application here that I'd like to draw to your attention from Esther. First, Esther is an excellent example of how God can and does use women who have and maintain gentle and quiet spirits, and he does so in powerful, kingdom-affecting ways. It's a, I see it as a, a powerful reminder that women don't have to give up their femininity. They don't have to give up their, their gentle and quiet spirits. They don't have to give up their submission to God's authority in order to be significant and in order to be valuable in the kingdom of God. And see, here's the thing. This is the polar opposite of what the world teaches and what the world indoctrinates the girls and the young women in our culture today. Unfortunately, it's far too often that our culture today, our culture and society today, influences the church in these matters much more than the church influences the culture. It's a very unfortunate thing. If every Christian girl and every Christian woman patterned her behavior and her lifestyle more like Esther and less like the popular influencers of today's culture, I'm convinced that the church would be having a far greater influence on the society and culture today in these areas than we currently do. And then secondly, Esther demonstrates here the ever so important and valuable trait of discretion. Now here Mordecai had counseled her to continue um, uh, concealing her background, not to disclose this to her husband, the king. Now her doing so, Esther's following uh, Mordecai's advice here. In, in so doing, she wasn't lying to, 
to the king. She wasn't deceiving the king for evil purposes or or to take advantage of him for her own personal benefit. What she was doing here was she was exercising discretion in the situation. And what discretion is? Discretion is the act of exercising discernment and then acting upon that discernment. See, she was concealing information that could have undermined her relationship with the king at this this particular point in time. Now, as we continue through the book, we will see that Esther does indeed disclose her full story to the king, but she does so in the Lord's timing. Discretion. Okay, verses 21 through 23. It says, In those days as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, And he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So this passage describes to us the beginning of a chain of events very important to the Lord's plan and purpose to save his people from annihilation. The end of verse 23 serves as what storytellers and writers call a cliffhanger. Probably all familiar with cliffhangers, right? In storytelling, cliffhangers are used to capture your attention, to hold your attention and the interest of the audience so that they'll be back for the next installment of the story. It leaves you wanting more, so you can't wait for that next installment. Now, in this case, that's not really what the Lord is doing here. He's not using a cliffhanger to capture our interest, but to serve his greater purpose later in the story. This cliffhanger at the end of our passage, this cliffhanger will resolve and we will see these events come to full fruition and we'll see that in chapter 6. So there's something to look forward to. And all of this to accomplish the Lord's purpose. So, This passage begins, we're briefly introduced to two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, who guarded the threshold. Now, the threshold is a reference to the doorway or the opening to the king's uh, his, the, the, the king's chamber in his palace, uh, the entrance to his presence. And these two guards... They served the king as his 
last line of defense, both from any type of physical harm or any uninvited guests or uninvited intruders. Um, They were the equivalent of what we would refer to today, what we call the secret service. You know, the, the men and women who guard the president of the United States. Okay. Now, it's interesting to me how King Ahasuerus, you know, he's, he's the ruler of the most powerful nation on earth at the time. He enjoyed virtually unlimited earthly authority, virtually unlimited earthly wealth, power, and pleasure. Yet, he was still susceptible to assassination. Still susceptible. Now, when it came to Big Thin and Teresh, you can be sure, we can be sure, that they were, before they were put in their positions, they were fully vetted. That is, to the best of the king's ability, they were carefully examined and they were established to be trustworthy, to perform what was arguably, I would say, the most important job in the world, guarding the king, last line of defense, right? Yet, they plotted to assassinate him. Now, for some reason, they became angry with the, with the king. We don't know why. We don't know what it is that set them off, what they got angry at. But it must have been of great importance, at least to them, in order to prompt an assassination attempt. Right? I mean, you can become pretty angry at somebody without going to that extent of of plotting to actually murder him. But that's where these guys were. Now, being so close to the king and so trusted, they probably would have succeeded were it not for their plan coming to the knowledge of Mordecai. Verse 22 states that this plot came to the knowledge of or or was revealed to Mordecai. Now, to many, Mordecai discovering this evil plot against the king might seem to be nothing more than a fortunate coincidence. See, we, we don't know exactly how he became aware of it, right? We're not given those details. I mean, maybe, possibly, he overheard Big Thin and Teresh planning this assassination. Maybe they even tried to enlist him as a co-assassin. Perhaps, you know, maybe there was a, a whistleblower in their midst. Someone who found out about this and then informed Mordecai. We just can't be sure. But what we can be sure of is that regardless of the the practical details of how Mordecai received this information, how he got the information, 
Ultimately, this is no coincidence at all. This is a wonderful example of the Lord exercising sovereign providence in order to ensure the survival of his covenant people. What we're meant to see, what we're meant to understand, is that the Lord himself was the source of Mordecai obtaining this information. Regardless of the physical details, the Lord himself was the source. This information coming to the knowledge of Mordecai, Mordecai informing Esther, Esther informing um, the Esther informing the king in Mordecai's name, and then ultimately the king being saved. This was all planned and all orchestrated by the Lord, all according to his will, all according to his timing, and all to serve his purpose. It was the Lord himself who preserved the life of the king for the purpose of or because he, the king, was God's chosen agent to later protect God's people from Haman's plot to annihilate them all. Mordecai and and Esther, they are living out what many years later the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome. Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Praise God. So Mordecai, he takes this information, the information that's come to him, the plot, the evil plot to assassinate the king, and he immediately informs Queen Esther. I say immediately, I think we can safely presume that this was an immediate response, given the inherent urgency associated with the information. Okay, Now, there's no practical reason that we are given for Mordecai giving this information to Queen Esther rather than to the king directly. Maybe, perhaps, he didn't have direct access to the king himself. Or maybe Mordecai was thinking strategically, and he wanted to include Esther in making this plot known to the king. I think it's clear that the Lord, again, the Lord is working in the circumstances to build the trustworthiness and to build the value of both Mordecai and Esther in the eyes of the king. So, Mordecai informs Esther. Esther then informs the king of this evil plot to assassinate him. Now, take note that she does so in the name of Mordecai, meaning that when she tells the king, when she talks to the king about this, she makes him aware 
not only of the plot, but of the fact that it was Mordecai who uncovered the plot and brought it immediately to Esther. So the king has now heard of this evil plot to assassinate him. And he's heard of it through his beloved queen that Mordecai was made aware of this plot. I want to point out a detail here. As much as the king loves Queen Esther, take note of how the king handles this situation. What he does here is he takes uh, what I would call reasonable and responsible action. What he does is he verifies this information. This might even seem or be somewhat uncharacteristic of the king. What I mean by that is, remember his, back in chapter 1, remember his impetuous response to Queen Vashti refusing to come when he commanded her. Let me just quickly reread two verses from chapter 1, verse 12 and then verse 15. It says, But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. And then verse 15, he says, According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. So, characteristically, I could see the king becoming enraged with anger against Big Thin and Teresh and simply ordering them to be executed. No checking into it, no, just his, his anger leading him to do that. I mean, certainly a plot to assassinate him is a worse offense than refusing to come when he commanded. I would think so. But unlike his response to Queen Vashti, the king responds to the claim that Queen Esther has made in a a much different way, in a much more reasonable and responsible way. He has the claim investigated. Now, The details of the investigation are not given, but presumably the investigation uncovers some type of evidence that is presented to the king that validates Mordecai's claim. Somehow the king is convinced that Bigthin and and Teresh were indeed actually conspiring to have the king assassinated. And the result, they were both executed. The text tells us that they were both executed by hanging on the gallows. Now, a literal translation of this phrase, being hanged or hanging on the gallows, could be either of two different forms of execution. It could be, one could be um, actual crucifixion on a tree. The other 
is that they could have been impaled on a stake. And that second one is the, or was the usual method of execution in Persia at the time. So it was, well, actually, either of these are gruesome. But this one is that um, uh, it, it was to impale the guilty party onto a, a sharpened stake that had been driven into the ground. It's gruesome. Okay. So most likely, that is how these two individuals were executed. Okay, now the final segment of this passage tells us <clears throat> that these events were recorded in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king. The book of Chronicles here is a reference to the annals or the official royal record of Persia. And these events, they were recorded in the presence of the king. Now, this is presumably to ensure their accuracy and their completeness. This record would have included the details of the assassination plot, all of the details that that um, that they knew um, that, that that were as uncovered by the uh, by the king's investigation. It also would have included the details of Esther and Mordecai's involvement in uncovering the plot and bringing it to the king's attention. What's important to understand and and not. Uh, explicitly stated here, uh, history records that the Persian kings were extremely diligent and very generous in rewarding those who had served them well, that they always kept meticulously accurate records of those who had served them well, those who had done them favors. And the idea here was that no good deed, and of course this is from the king's perspective, that no good deed would go or should go unrewarded. So this would certainly include someone who saved the king's life. So the end result here for Mordecai is that he should have been and normally would have been uh, publicly recognized and rewarded. But strangely, or if we understand really what's going on, it's not so strange, but interestingly, this good deed of Mordecai's went unrecognized and it went unrewarded. Mordecai didn't receive, at the time, he didn't receive as much as a thank you from the king, directly or indirectly. The uncommon oversight or forgetfulness on the part of King Ahasuerus will prove to be an absolute necessity in God's plan. It's an 
integral part of what leads to Esther being instrumental in saving God's people, God's plan to save his people. You see, when it comes to God's sovereignty, timing is so often, if not always, critical. God's hand is invisible in this circumstance of Mordecai being overlooked, but he is, God is nevertheless, absolutely at work in the details in order to accomplish his will. It's much like when when Joseph uh, was in prison and he interpreted the cupbearer's dream. When he did that, and, and it all worked its, itself out, and the, the cupbearer was going to be released from prison, he asked the cupbearer to remember him when he was released from prison. But what happened is, the cupbearer promptly forgot him. Forgot him for, for about two years. Joseph didn't hear anything for two years. Now, that... That series of events right there, however, earned Joseph the recognition as a trusted source of interpreting dreams. God was at work at that time in those events. He was at work behind the scenes, and God brought that series of events to full fruition when, two years later, Pharaoh had a troubling dream and no one could interpret it for him. So, in a very similar way, Mordecai and Esther have become trusted sources of important information in the eyes of the king. So even though Mordecai received no immediate reward or recognition for his actions, God was working behind the scenes. He was working behind the scenes to elevate both Esther and Mordecai's reputation with the king. And what we will see is that God will bring this series of events to its full fruition all in his own time. So Mordecai and Esther they don't seem to be aware, or at least not fully aware, of the Lord at work in the immediate circumstances of their lives. Uh, Bigthan and Teresh plotting to assassinate the king. Mordecai learning of this devious plot. The king gaining this information through Mordecai and Esther. And then, ultimately, uh, uh, the king failing to publicly recognize and reward Mordecai. They might not be fully aware of the Lord at work in all of this, but the Lord was at work in these circumstances, even though Mordecai and Esther weren't aware of it. Well, the Lord is similarly... He's similarly at work 
in the details and the circumstances of our lives. And most of the time, by his design or often by our own spiritual blindness, we're just not aware of it. We just don't see it. So let this passage be another of many reminders throughout the book of Esther that the Lord is always at work in the lives, in the circumstances, in the details of your life and of my life. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this wonderful example of how you work behind the scenes in the lives of your people. Thank you for always working in our lives to protect us and to preserve us, all according to your will, your timing, and your purpose in your kingdom and in our lives. Thank you for that. Father, I pray that you will please help us all to learn from our study tonight of this example and help us to trust you in all the circumstances of our lives, even when you're working in our lives behind the scenes. Thank you, Father, and amen.